of the book of Esther. And by the time we get to Esther, a lot has occurred up to this point. The Babylonians had come in and God's people had uh, been exiled, the, the, the land of Judah. First, the people of the northern ten tribes of Israel had been overtaken by the Assyrians. And uh, Judah had a few good kings, and so it wasn't long uh, after Assyria, that Judah got taken over. They got a little little bit of a break because they had some good kings. God spared them, and God was with them and delivered them. But a few years later, the Babylonians came in and overtook the people of Judah, and a bunch of the people were scattered all throughout the land, and some were taken into captivity, and, and some of God's people uh, ended up in, in, in the land of Susa, which is where the story of Esther takes place, at least here at the beginning. This is this is what we see the area we're looking at. And so God's people had been dispersed in a lot of different places, but God was still with his people. Now, when we go through the book of Esther, I, I really kind of kind of struggled and pondered and, and tried to figure out the best way to, to, to preach through this book because the story really needs to be taken as a whole. That is, it's good, I think, for us to see all of the details. Now, I could have told you the story and, and kind of summed up everything, and we could have got through the heart of Esther probably in one or two sermons. But I didn't want to rush through it because I think for us to really understand and see how God works, we need to see how the story unfolds. And so we're going to go through the whole book, but, but it might look a little different maybe than some other sermons because, you know, some, some things you preach through, some books you preach through, and and maybe each section you read has has some good, easy-to-see, solid application. Oh, this, this passage is about love, or this passage is about forgiveness, or this passage is about that. And, and we may can see that in a lot of different books or a lot of passages, but the book of Esther doesn't necessarily break down quite as easy. And so what we, what we will see in the book of Esther is, is we will pay, take big sections that it, it may not be obvious to us that anything is going on, or there may not be an obvious life application to it. Now, that's not to say that God may not speak to you in some way through his word. He, he often does. But, but we may not see the type of applications or things that are, that are readily available to us each week. But hopefully as we, as we build and go through each chapter, we can look at some of the characters and look at the way some of the things unfold. And when we get to the end of the book of Esther, we'll have a better idea. And so, Lord willing, we're going to probably take, most weeks, uh, we're going to take a chapter a week. And we won't break down every single, every single passage and verse because I don't know that the story really lends to that. But we want to hear the whole story. It's like if you went to the movie theater, you turned on to watch your favorite TV show. We, we watch Murder, She Wrote a lot here lately. And sure, you could, you could fast forward right to the end and see exactly who done it and what happened. But, but you miss the story, and you miss the characters, and you miss important things that help build that story. And that's how the book of Esther is. There are a lot of details here, especially at the beginning, that may not seem like they make much sense. They, they may seem kind of pointless in a way, but, but the author is presenting Esther to us as a story. And he's, he's introducing us to some of these characters and some of the events and we don't want to necessarily get caught up in all of the details of all of the events, but we do want to see how each of these play each of these things play into the bigger picture. And so I wanted to give that little bit of an intro uh, as to the book of Esther 
because it will be a little different. But I think that as we go through each chapter and we see each of these characters, there's going to be a theme that we're going to see, uh, which really I would say is the main theme throughout the book of Esther. And we will talk about that as we move along. So, Lord willing, we're going to get through the first chapter today. It's just 21 verses. We'll read through a few different sections and kind of briefly look at some of the high points of, of what we can consider. And uh, time permitting, we will make it through all of chapter one today, but we'll just see if we can if we can get through. So let's pray and we'll jump in. <laughs> Father God, we come to you and we thank you for these good words. And I pray that as we read through the book of Esther, that your Holy Spirit would help us to grow from what we hear, dear Lord, that we can see this story unfold, that we can see you at work in this story, and that, God, we can see you at work in our lives. And so I pray that you help me to do a good job preaching and teaching through this and help me to know just the right words to say. And I pray that, that the Holy Spirit would reveal some good for us, some, some application for our life, that there's something that we read and, and see in your word today that your spirit can work through us. And I pray that you be with us these next few minutes. Hide me behind the cross and help me to do a good job. Help us to listen and help us to grow in your word today. In Jesus' name I pray it. Amen. All right, Esther chapter 1, verse 1. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. So here we are introduced to one of the main characters in the book, King Ahasuerus. Now, some of your translations may say Xerxes, same person. Throughout history, uh, we, we've discovered that Ahasuerus and Xerxes are the same person. So if your translation says one or the other, we're talking about the same person here. And he was the king that ruled over 127 provinces from India to Kush. This was a large kingdom. Uh, now, he ruled over the, the kingdom of the of the of the uh, of the uh, Persian and, and the Medians, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, we sometimes may hear referred to. And, and these were two empire, uh, empires of the day, and they were kind of working together. Years and years before, Egypt was kind of the superpower of the day, and then Assyria kind of rose to power, and then after them came the Babylonians. And after the Babylonians, the one that drove uh, the people into exile and out of, out of, out of Jerusalem, came the Medo-Persians. They were kind of teamed up for a little while, uh, and their biggest enemy who would ultimately overtake them was Greece. And uh, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, he, he, he had some battles against Greece, but was never really successful, could never really overtake them. And we see the size of his province mentioned. And this may not mean much to you, but, but it was big. It says from India to Kush. Now, India, all the way from India back to the west is a lot of ground. We're talking uh, modern-day Iraq and Iran and Israel and into Kush, which would have been the northern part of Egypt, and then, then around the Mediterranean Sea, uh, around uh, to what we would call modern-day Turkey, all the way right up to the edge of Greece. 
Now, this was a big, huge kingdom that the Medes and the Persians occupied during this time period. And, and also in this time period, uh, we, see, we see other religious ideas and other thoughts begin to pop up. To the West and Greece, uh, not long after this time period, and in about the time same range, uh, we see Socrates and, and his philosophy and his teachings begin to pop up. And also we see in India, which is just on the edge of this territory, this is also the same time period that Buddha began to to bring his teachings of enlightenment out and all of those things. And so there was a lot going on in the world in this, in this time period in the years right after these events that took place. And so that gives us a little idea of kind of the geography and what, what things look like in that time period. Uh, but here we have the king that's having this big meeting with the nobles and the officials and, and the army of Persia, and, and he was displaying his greatness for 180 days. There was a celebration of sorts that was taking, on, uh, taking place in, in this area of Susa. Now, Susa would be kind of right in between what is modern-day Iraq and Iran. So if you look at your map, it's kind of right, right on the border of those two areas, right really pretty close to the middle of this kingdom that we just talked about uh, from Kush to India. And so this is the location where these things are taking place. And verse 5, at the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were in the present, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hanging with were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Beverages were served and an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty, and no restraint was placed on the drinking. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve as much as each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus' palace. And so at the end of this 180-day kind of celebration that was going on in whatever way that was taking place, at the end of it all, we see this week-long banquet that, that seems to be for all of the people in the area. And, and we see the wealth of the king as we see things described here with the gold and the silver and the marble and all of these different, different things that we see. And this was, a, this was a big party where the king was really displaying his power and really displaying his wealth. And then at the end of this passage we just read, we're introduced to another key character which only, only makes an appearance briefly in the story, at the beginning of the story, and that is Queen Vashti. So King Ahasuerus was showing his power. He was having the meetings with the officials and the army, and then this big feast took place. And it was not only the king and those around him who were feasting and, and, and drinking. It was also Queen Vashti who had a feast and a party uh, of her own for the women. Let's continue on in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bictha, Abaktha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. 
But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. So here the king has been drinking for a lot of days. He's got a lot of his buddies with him who had also been drinking. And he was feeling good from the wine. He was drunk and to, uh, and to uh, in his drunkenness, wanted to show off the beauty of his queen. Now, exactly what, what he intended or what he wanted, it's, it's hard to know. Perhaps he just wanted to bring her in and parade her before them just to show, hey, not only am I great and own this vast territory and have all of this wealth and all of these things, but I also have the most beautiful woman in, in the whole uh, province and the whole area. And I'm going to bring her through and I'm going to parade her off before my friends. Now, we don't really know what the king's motives were, what the king's intent were. Uh, maybe there was something more that he was wanting to require of Queen Vashti. Maybe it was just simply a pass-through for others to admire her beauty. Or maybe there was something more that, that was expected at the king's calling here. Uh, we really don't know. But the king in his drunken state sent for Queen Vashti, but the queen refused to come to the king's command. So here we see the problem arise. Now, it's easy for us when we read through this passage, we, we may want to kind of pick sides here and say, well, the king didn't have any business calling her. Perhaps he had, he had some evil things in mind for calling. Maybe he wanted her to do things that were, that were not acceptable. And maybe that is the case. We, we don't know that, but that certainly could be a possibility. And, and, and we may applaud Vashti for denying his command. She might have said, no, you're drunk. I'm not coming over there. And, and maybe Vashti was, was in some way in the right for doing that. Uh, there, are, there are some, at least, who, uh, some feminists who point to this passage and say, we need more women like Vashti, that, that Vashti was right in standing up, that she had a right to stand up, that the king was wrong, that he's, he's a male chauvinist, just showing off his power as a male and, and abusing that power and not treating women with respect. And Vashti was, was right for standing up and not going before the king. And that may be true. I don't want us to get caught up in the weeds on those, on those discussions because that's really not important part of the story. I'm not saying the king was right or wrong by calling Vashti in. And I'm not saying that Vashti was right or wrong by denying to come to the king. She may have very well been right to say what she said. I mean, there, there, there may not, she may have had, had good intentions and good motives by saying, no, I'm not coming, you're drunk. I'm not going to be part of whatever it is that you have planned. Others would say, as the story progresses and we see Esther enter into the scene, that the queen should have, should have come and should have listened to her husband, should have been obedient to her husband. But that's a, I think that all of those discussions go beyond what the author of Esther wanted us to understand. We're not trying to decipher male chauvinists and feminists here. We're not trying to figure out if, 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 if Ahasuerus was in the right or Vashti was in the right. There's a bigger picture that's unfolding in the story. Now, regardless of, of whether the events that follow are right or not, they are part of the story. So let us continue along in verse 13. Well, excuse me, at the end of verse 12, we see the king's response. We didn't talk about that, but the king became very furious and his anger burned within him. So this, this, this response of the queen and the attitude 
uh, of the king prepare us for what's about to take place in verse 13. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in the law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shithar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mares, Marcina, and Mimukin. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti, since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' commands that was delivered by the eunuchs. Mimukin said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus's provinces. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus's order, King Ahasuerus ordered King Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. All right, here's another interesting section. The king was angry because Vashti had denied his request. He had requested something. Not only was he the man, the husband, the, the leader, but he was also the king. And he's showing off his power and wealth and throwing this big party. And of all the things, he makes a request and Queen Vashti says, no. Now, this would have made the king look bad, and he was not happy about this that had taken place. And so he asked his advisors, those who were close to him, hey, what should we do about this? And one of his advisors says, well, we better do something about it quick, because if the rest of the women and the provinces hear about what the queen's done, they're not going to listen to their husbands either. And so we must put a stop to this. We must do something to, to stop things from getting out of control fast. Now, again, we could talk about maybe what this means or maybe the attitude of the men or the women here. And, and, and you may say, well, these men were just trying to keep their reign on the women and trying to rule them and didn't want the women to have a say. And maybe the intentions of the men here were good or maybe they were bad. Uh, it is important, I think, for us to, to think just for a moment at least as to what, what uh, marriage between a man and a wife and, and the New Testament looks like and what God calls us to. And God does say that the man is to be the head of the household. Now, I'm not saying that all men may not sometimes be like these men and may not have the best intentions and may flex their power in a way that is inappropriate and disrespectful to their wife. Sometimes men do that. Men, we don't want to be guilty of that. But regardless, this is the structure that God has provided, that he created man first and then woman, that there is this structure in the household, that it is the husband who is to be the head of the household, that it is the husband who is to make the decisions and to take care of the household, and it is the wife who is to be submissive to her husband. Now, sometimes husbands do things that are inappropriate and disrespectful, and maybe sometimes the requests that men, that husbands make to their wives are things that are ungodly. And maybe there are occasions that women should be like Vashti. And maybe there are occasions where it would be sinful to do 
something that the husband requests. Well, women must pray in those situations, but men, we must be careful to make sure that we are respecting our wives and not putting them in that position and not exercising our power in the way that we should not exercise that power, but that we should lead our household and our wives and our children in a way that God commands us to do so. That we know for sure from the New Testament. We don't know the motives. We don't know the things that were going on here. We may not know all the intricacies of the, intricacies of the king's request or Vashti's response. And whether or not this response was appropriate and a correct response by Vashti or by the king, again, we don't want to get weighed down with those things because in some sense we make it say those are important, but, but they are not necessarily important to the story. These are, these are parts of the story that introduce characters of the story that maybe give us some contrast with other parts of the story as we continue on. And so the queen had disrespected the king. The king did not want to lose face. The other men did not want to have this problem happening in their house where all of a sudden they were losing their ability to be the head of the household and women were speaking up. And so they had to come up with a solution to the problem. And so we see that in verse 19. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be revoked. Now this is an important, important thing that we will see as the story unfolds. This idea of a law among the Medes and the Persians that cannot be revoked. Now we see this idea uh, also in the story of Daniel. That, that Daniel, this, this, this law is passed by those who hate Daniel, that, hey, if anybody's caught praying to, to anybody other than the king, that they will be thrown into the lion's den. And Daniel, of course, prayed to God. He didn't pray to the statue or whatever it was. And he, he was thrown into the lion's den. And the king wanted to rescue him, but he had already made that law that he couldn't take back. It was irrevocable. And that's, that's kind of a theme that we see here in this story here at the beginning and then again at the end, that, that, that laws cannot be revoked once they're given by the king. And so here they are making this, this irrevocable law to deal with the problem at hand. And we see in the middle of verse 19, Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she the decree is the king the decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom so all women will honor their husbands from the least to the greatest the king and his counselors approved the proposal and he followed Mimikin's advice he sent letters to all the royal provinces to each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language that every man should be the master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. And so the king's solution, and you may say, well, he's, he's just kind of flexing his muscle and the men are abusing the power that they had, and maybe they are, but their solution that they came up with is we will make an example of Vashti. Hey, look, the queen is not going to talk back to the king and disrespect his request, and it's not respected, uh, expected of any other woman to disrespect their husband, but it is expected that, hey, if women speak out when they are not supposed to, it's not going to be good. And so they made an example out of Vashti so that the rest of the women would see and be afraid and the law was passed. Hey, men are to be masters of their household. 
And so Vashti was to be removed as queen and she was to be replaced with another. Now there's one interesting thing and I believe it's a very interesting thing that we see in the book of Esther. And you may be saying to yourself, well, where is God in all of this? And that's a good question. Because throughout the whole book of Esther, God is not mentioned one single time. God is not mentioned throughout the whole book of Esther. And that's kind of the point, I believe, that the author was trying to get across to us in the book of Esther. And I, I want you to look as we go through the book. And I want you to consider this point, that you don't see God mentioned. You don't see the big miracles of God that we've seen before this point in the book, throughout the Bible. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, in, this, in all the things that we've seen, we, we continually see God working miracles among people. I mean, we see, we see the flood. We see uh, the parting of the Red Sea. We see all of those plagues and those things. And we see Daniel saved from the lions. I mean, all of these miracles that we see God do throughout the Old Testament that, that really show the power and the greatness of God that, that can be visibly seen in a miraculous way. But yet we come to the story in Esther, and God is not even mentioned. Nor do we see any great big miracles take place in the story of Esther. But what you will see, I think, as we read through the book, if you pay attention, is you will see that God is involved in every single thing that goes on. That God desires to deliver his people. And here in Susa were some of his people were some of God's people who had been dispersed, who had been driven out because of their enemies. Now, because of their disobedience, this was the, this was the people's own fault that they had, they had been dispersed and are under the rules of these foreigners. But God still desired to deliver his people. And in the midst of their sin, and in the midst of all that was going on, we don't see God mentioned. But what we do see in this story is God at work. And I think what we see at the beginning of this story is these events that seem pretty, pretty much like nothing of importance, right? We, just, we see some men that are acting a certain way and a queen that's acting a certain way and we're not sure if they're doing right or wrong or what does this have to do with anything? Well, this event sets up the next event. This part of the story sets up the next part of the story. And so all of these things where we don't see God at work if we look, we do see God at work because what God is doing here is he's getting Queen Vashti out of the queenship so that a new queen can come in. Now, this brings up a good question for us to ponder, and perhaps you have pondered this question. At what level is God at work in our lives? In what ways does God work in our life? Now, some would say if... if, 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 if uh, from deism, the, 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 the belief in deism and all of the things that go along with that, the deist would say that God has put everything into motion, but yet he takes no part in any of the things that go on in the world. That is, God made the globe and spun it and got it going and everything happens and God has done the work, but God has taken a step back. He just, he just watches what happened. God is not involved. You have others who would say 
No, God is involved in every single, every single thing is planned out. Every speck you see when you look, you look at a light and you see dust flying by, that that particle of dust is in that particular spot at this particular moment because God has placed every speck of dust in, in every spot. Every single thing has been planned out and God has his hand in everything. And then there's some who say, well, God has made everything and God is still involved. God doesn't necessarily make everything occur that occurs. But whatever occurs, God is involved in and God can work through. And that's kind of the view that I, I tend to lean toward. I don't know, though. I don't know it as to what level God is involved. Maybe God makes every single thing occur. Maybe God makes every single thing happen. Or maybe some things that happen are simply just part of life. Sin has entered into this world, and so, you know, God, God wanted things to be a certain way, and God messed, I mean, uh, we messed that way up because we were disobedient to God, and when sin entered in, it, it brought with it death. It brought with us a lot of tragedy and heartache and hard times, and, and maybe part of what goes on in this world is not that God makes every single thing happen, but, but some things do just happen as a result of sin, as a result of life, but I certainly don't believe that God is looking at a distance. I certainly believe that God is involved in some level. Now, whether the king's actions here were, were, were done because God caused the king or made the king do these actions in some way, or whether the king just did these things on his own, I don't really know. I think that probably this was just the king being the king. And maybe the actions the king took were not good. But... What God can do is he can take things and he can use things that occur, even if he didn't necessarily say this is the way it's going to occur. He can use what is occurring for his good. And I believe that that's what God does in this story. There's an opportunity that arises. God wants his queen to come into place. That is Queen Esther. He wants these events to occur. And so we see God working throughout this story and the way things that are playing out. And God in some way has a hand in this. He has a hand in the way that these things work out. And, and we see this, this type of language and this idea uh, in Scripture that, that sometimes uh, people, people gain favor with those that they shouldn't gain favor with. A good example of that is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Here his brothers sell him into slavery. He ends up going into Egypt. And, and here this guy is. Uh, an, an, an Israelite guy from, from the, the land of Canaan in this foreign land, but yet everything Joseph does, he finds favor. He finds favor with the guy he works for. He finds favor when he's in prison. He goes before the king and finds favor with the king, with the pharaoh, and becomes second in command. In all of these instances, Joseph finds favor in the situation that he's in. And I believe we see God working that way in this story and, and, and in other stories and, and maybe in our life in some situations that we end up in that, that we may end up in these situations because of our own sin and the own, our own choices that we make, choices that God would not desire for us to make. But sometimes when we're in the midst of those consequences and in the midst of those places, God can still work. And here God's people have been driven from their land because of their sinfulness but God is still finding a way to work things out. And that's an important thing for us to remember because we see so many things go on in our world and especially weeks like this week in our community. In the last couple of weeks where we've seen so many people 
with COVID the last couple of years, but, but even in the last couple of weeks, we see uh, so many that are passing away and we see bad things that occur in our world. And we may be tempted to say, where is God? I don't see God. Why isn't God doing something? And you may could read through the story of Esther and say the same thing. God's not mentioned. God doesn't do anything miraculous. Where is God? But yet God is right there in the midst of the story. Maybe not in ways that are easily visible. Maybe not in ways that are easy to understand. I don't know that God causes every little speck and every little thing to happen, but I do believe that God works in everything that happens. I do believe in that everything that occurs in all of our suffering and sorrow and heartache and everything we go through, God is working in us in that suffering. God is working in that situation. God is working in that circumstance. And there may be things in life that are just like the introduction here to this, this, this book of Esther. And we say, what has this got to do with anything? Why did this occur? Why did that occur? Well, just sit back and watch. And you may say, God's, God's not in this. But as we read through the book of Esther, what we will see is that God is in this. God is in this story. God played a part in seeing to it that a new queen came into the queenship under the king, and it was Esther. And whatever you're going through in your life, I can assure you that God has not forgotten about you. He has not abandoned you. And things that you say, man, I don't, I don't understand why this happens, or this wasn't right, or that wasn't right the way things happened. And maybe it wasn't right what somebody did or, or, or something that occurred. Maybe it, was, maybe it was tough and seemed unfair. But God's still working right in the midst of all of those things. Even though we don't see him, we have to remember that God is still at work. We would, we would love to, I, 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 would, I would reckon that everybody in here would love to see the miraculous type of miracles like we saw in the Old Testament. I mean, who would not like to see a, a sea being split in half? I mean, I'd love to see that. It would be a phenomenal thing to see. And all of these miracles that God does in the Old Testament, I'd love to see God working in that way. But at our times, God has chosen not necessarily to work in that way but perhaps to work in ways more like he does in the book and in the story of Esther. He's working in the background. He's not even mentioned, but he's at work. He's taking care of his people. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him. And that, I think, is what we see in the book of Esther, and I don't want us to miss that in our life. And so maybe you're asking the question today, where is God? I don't see him. Well, maybe you're looking... Maybe you're looking for him in the wrong way. Maybe you're looking for some big miraculous miracle, but, but maybe the way he's working is in a way that, that doesn't even seem like it makes sense. <laughs> no more than the actions of, of the king and his men seem to make sense. Maybe they weren't right in what they did, but what they did God could use for his good and for his kingdom. And so pray that you pray to God that, that he would help you to see how he's working. Maybe give you a glimpse. And, and don't lose faith and don't lose hope when you see bad things occur in your life or in the life of others and think that God doesn't care, God's not there. We just don't know. We don't know how God may be working in the background. So keep trusting Him. Keep praying to Him. 
and keep seeking Him. And know that God is with you. And God desires what is good for you. And God works out things that we say are bad, and they may very well be. But God is working in those things and through those things. And we must not forget that. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you and we thank you for these words and this story. And and it's a crazy story about Ahasuerus and Vashti and what's going on between them. And dear Lord, as we see this story unfold, I pray that we, we, don't, we don't miss you, but we do see you at work and how you're at work in and, and these events. But more so, God, I pray that, that we don't miss you in our own life, that we see in our own life maybe ways that you're at work. Maybe we've missed them. Maybe we've been looking for you in the wrong ways. God, because you often work in ways that are not what we expect. You usually do something that we don't ever expect, but no surprise, God, it always works out for the good. And so let us trust your ways, dear Lord, and not rely on our own understanding because, well, you know what's right. And your ways are good. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, dear Lord. And help us not to forget that. Help us not to lose hope, God. Help us not to, to question you when bad things occur as if, as if you're not there, you don't care. Dear Lord, you know everything that occurs. God, I believe that you're involved in our lives in the midst of, of all the things that do occur, dear Lord. You can work those things out. You can work in us. You can work in the lives of others. And so, God, I pray that we would, we would never forget that truth, that we would never forget that you are with us in the midst of our most difficult times, that you are working things out for your good, dear Lord. And so, God, I pray that you just would help us to, to trust that truth today. God, I pray that if there is one in this room that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God, maybe there are some in this room and they've been looking for Jesus in the wrong ways. Maybe they've been waiting on you to do a miracle. Maybe they've been waiting for you to reveal yourself to them in some way. But God, I pray that they would realize today that you have already revealed yourself to them through your words. And God, maybe you do do miracles sometimes that we see. I don't doubt that some folks in this world see things that are unbelievable. But God, a lot of times you just kind of work behind the scenes. But you give us all the truth that we need in your word and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that if there's one that has not seen that truth, God, that they just would look at the ink on the pages and know that the answers and the and the truth and the knowledge and the forgiveness of Christ are, are right there for us to see. God, I pray that you be with this church, that you keep everybody healthy, that you get everybody restored. And God, I pray that you would help us as a church to see you working through us, in us, and things you do. God, help us not to miss you. Help us never to question whether you're around, whether you care, whether you're working. Because God, we know through your word that you love us and that you are working. And God, even in the midst of all the things that seem tough, you can still do a mighty work and deliver your people. And God, I just pray that you would help us never to forget that. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.